The podcast you're about to listen to has two video components that may confuse you if you're just listening on audio. The first is a, a toy that Paul pulls. It's a toy with a looks like a bunch of wad of dollar bills, but it has a man figure on it, and you pull the string, and it says funny things about money. So that's the first thing you hear, basically, and the last thing you hear. And also, in the middle, I talk about uh, witnessing something that Paul does or that happens to us during recording, and you can't really witness it very well in audio, but you'll get the idea, right? This is mainly an audio product, and I welcome you to This Week in Common Sense. Money doesn't grow on trees. I've looked. You know, the modern is the cash machine, but way back when there was the talk about money growing on trees. And, you know, what's what's the difference, really? It's the same thought that just money's magic and we just print it up or, or type it into a computer, uh, some digits, and voila, we've got money. And that's, that's really been the core response to this pandemic, um, which is, you know, you'd think would be medical, but the, the core response has been to basically drop ship money everywhere, send money to everyone, whether they need it or not. And, and you know, we've, we've talked several different times about the fact that this isn't a crisis of people not having money to buy goods. There's, there's, the stores aren't open, and they're beginning to open, but stores have not been open, and yet the governing principle is make everything liquid, just pour money into businesses as if somehow we could just we could just pay every business to stay afloat um, as if that's a simple thing and and individuals and the the problem being that that money has to come from somewhere and well okay Paul just froze you just witnessed a freeze in Skype that's not an uncommon event in the days of the coronavirus it's no more uncommon than is throwing money at a problem. Anyway, this is This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. We're going to go try Zoom now, but I should mention that we're talking about Cash Machine Cache from May 18th, 2020. That's on thisiscommonsense.org. And uh, Paul, uh, you want to expound upon that idea of uh, throwing money at it? We really have two, it seems to me, two issues that we deal with in cash machine cachet, which is one, the money and the fact that the cash machine, like a you know a kid would say, hey, let's just, hey, parent, parental unit, I, I want some snack, just go to the cash machine if you don't have cash. Uh, or, you know, they used to say, just use your credit card. Um, and, you know, parents roll their eyes and so on, but that's, that has become, uh, and it's not the kids saying it, it's us old geezers saying it, uh, it's the government, it's the officialdom that, uh, that is, this is a cash machine. We just, <clears throat> we print up whatever's needed. We're going to keep everything liquid as long as, as printing presses and the computer financial network works. Uh, we're just going to throw caution to the wind and, and we can just invent money. The other part of it, though, and this is something I don't know that we've written about uh, before, Tim, but it's something you and I have discussed a lot, which is 
we just cease production. Not everywhere, but almost everywhere. I mean, just all kinds of productive activities sidelined. And I don't know of any historical precedent for it, really. Um, you know, we've, you know, I don't know what they were doing exactly during the, you know, the Black Death and the bubonic plague. The, you know, I, I don't have any, you know, deep understanding of what they did 100 years ago when the Spanish flu uh, killed so many people. But they, I know they didn't completely shut down the economy. Uh, I know they were playing baseball uh, and had people going to stadiums. And, you know, so I don't, I don't know that this has ever really taken place. And that double whammy of, boom, here's a bunch of new money to push into circulation. And especially when the problem isn't that there's not enough money chasing goods. The problem is everything's shut down, so there's no goods to chase. And at the same time, a just complete constriction of the productive capacity of the economy. Um, And so, you know, this is something that uh, I think uh, it'll be interesting, and I don't mean that in a fun way, to find out what is the full damage, which I don't think we've seen yet, to the economy. But I think the other thing is the attitude damage. Uh, So many people in this pandemic have used it as an argument for we need government that's more forceful and that's doing everything for us so that we could easily survive pandemics where we're in our home watching Netflix for 18 months at a time or what have you. Um, that attitude of we need a big brother government that takes care of us is out there uh, in ample supply. And, and I think the attitude or the actions of the federal government have, have certainly boosted that idea. Yeah, the whole idea of magic. I mean, we often talk about how people regard the state as magic and it can do magical things. And they don't see it as magic when they have this belief. We call it magic because they forget about where things really come from. And in this case, productivity. Productivity right. shut down and they just sort of expect things to go on forever as if we can't run out of stuff. And you right. quote Elon Musk this time, uh, who had that great line on uh, Joe Rogan. Um, if, if you, you don't, don't make, make stuff, stuff <laughs> there's no stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a great line. Um, I don't think many people understand that basic element of economics. They've sort of been divorced from it because of past cash machine ideas. Yes. Well, it's, it's think about sometimes when someone is making bad financial moves, you know, how long it takes. Think about people who are addicted to drugs and, and doing all kinds of machinations financially and sometimes the most amazing thing is how long they can juggle and how long it can go on before the music stops. And, um, and the same is true with, with countries. And part of the reason I think that the music hasn't stopped already on the United States of America is that we're the world's main currency. And we're a big player and can throw a lot of weight around. Uh, I think that if we were in hock as much as we are, and we were a two-bit player, 
we'd be in a lot of trouble. We'd be in a lot of trouble. So this is, uh, I mean, this, this issue of what to do about a pandemic does really, I think, touch on the core issues in our society, which is, is this going to be a massive state that tells us all what to do? We're going to get like the rest of the world has been at different times, or at least as we think they are, even though a lot of the, for instance, Denmark and Sweden's that are pointed to as the, you know, social welfare countries and the socialist countries are countries that have taken a different approach, a more free market approach economically, but also have taken, in the case of Sweden, a much more free market uh, or free, I don't know if free market is really the right word, but kind of a more laissez-faire approach to COVID-19 and more of a herd mentality and yet taking, making smart moves. I mean, this is, this is the thing that in all our discussions about avoiding the, the virus, we, we don't say enough that people make all kinds of decisions on their own. And, you know, sometimes you think people do a lot of stupid things, but it's amazing when it comes to their own well-being, how people are not so stupid. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a wonder, but we survive. And, and so, you know, a lot of businesses in America would have shut down whether the government and governors were telling them to shut down or not, at least until they figured out how can I open safely. And so, you know, it's, it's freedom versus the great commander who runs the society in such a way that everyone's protected. And really from the very beginnings of this, and we'll get to this with our last uh, commentary, uh, but from the very beginning, the CCP virus, the Chinese Communist Party virus, the Wuhan virus, the China virus, the beginnings of it were secrecy, arresting doctors who spoke about it. It was the reaction of a totalitarian in this case, but it could have been an authoritarian in many cases that would take the same reaction. Silence people, shut people up, tell people they better not say anything or else we'll get them. Um, That's how a lot of the world works. The places that have done best, they just this week had uh, 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 Chai Ing-wen, the uh, female president of Taiwan was inaugurated into her second term and um, you know their embrace of freedom and democracy and all the good things has come with it a wonderful track record against this disease and a very unified country and uh, it's it's nice to it's nice to see that it's nice to see that you know what Freedom is not only the right thing and the moral system to live under where people are respected, but it performs so much better. And yet, <clears throat> as, and we, I don't think we have a, 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 a commentary on this topic this week, but we have talked so much about how the U.S. and at least uh, a lot of the world's communication networks, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Vimeo, uh, Facebook, uh, are increasingly clamping down on information 
and becoming the CCP of social media. The idea that we have to, our main impulse should be to stop information from getting out to people. And, um, and of course, when we're dealing with life and death, which we're dealing with that every darn day of our lives, but when we're dealing with that, we, people can't be wrong. Well, you know what? We don't have all the answers. And in the West, at least that's where the idea came from, the U.S. has done more for free speech than any nation in history. That is our claim to fame. And, uh, and that robust speech is going to get the answers out there and free people can choose those correct answers and we'll all make a ton of mistakes but we'll never be led like sheep to the slaughter and and those folks who look at this and want to trade for the great noble leader who's going to lead his flock of sheep to the slaughter i do not understand it and and let's use that to segue to friday's commentary masks work and i segue because these are the two really about the virus uh and the reaction but i segue because we've done a, a good bit we did a previous one about masks <laughs> i've done a lot of debating with people about uh masks and there's there's a couple things first there's the beginning effort by both the government and the media and I'm not a big fan of the government. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the media, but when they get together, I'm really, really not a fan. And they got together to, I think, protect the medical people who needed masks and they were in short supply. Uh, and somehow they were afraid all of us, uh, you know, goobers out here in, in uh, TV land would take up all the masks and medical people wouldn't be able to get them. So they decided to lie to us and tell us that masks wouldn't be any good. They'd be counterproductive. We'd probably be more apt to get infected, I guess, because we're claws and we couldn't be taught how to use masks. And of course, then of course, there's also the argument that, you know, uh, coronavirus is spread, this novel coronavirus, the COVID-19, is spread more in an aerosol <clears throat> type way. And so those particles are very, very small and that, you know, a lot of masks are not gonna block those particles. But there's a chance that they might block those particles. And there is a ch chance, obviously we didn't know early on how exactly it was being spread. So to say don't wear masks was pretty dumb when you don't know how it's being spread. But what we've learned since is that it's being spread an awful lot of times by people who are asymptomatic. They don't know they have it. Nobody knows they have it. Nobody would know because they're not symptomatic. And so had those people been wearing masks, it would have been cut down dramatically because it can better cut down what you're spewing into the atmosphere than what the atmosphere is spewing at you. Um, but the bottom line is, it's of some value and why we have these busy, busy bodies on the television, on the internet, in public life, who constantly wanted to lecture us about how this isn't really good enough or, or you know, first we, we don't need the masks because they're gonna, they won't work and they're counterproductive. 
then in some places we're forced to use the masks because now they are productive. And then we still have people poo-pooing them. Look, they help. They help on some level. And, uh, and it just seems to me that we have so much misinformation. And this is tied to this fear that somehow a lot of individuals doing something like making masks, all kinds of different masks, of all kinds of different textures and fabrics, and oh my goodness, they wouldn't all be uniform, that that just can never work. And, and I think that's why I so love the way the whole mask issue has broken, which was first you lie to us and tell us not to wear them. Then you demand a lot of places that we wear them or else. And then you still bitch and moan about how they don't solve every problem. Well, you know what? We're just going to do the best we can and try to enjoy a little bit of life, whether we're wearing a mask or not. I was a really adopter of masks um, and gloves. Now I've sort of flagged from that practice a little bit because everything's so crazy. I don't even want to encourage the crazy people. The only good thing about this whole coronavirus, in my opinion, is that it may regularize, normalize mask wearing in public so that people can go around with a mask and not have their faces tracked by uh, NSA. I'm uh, somewhat paranoid about the NSA and their face tracking software. And I don't think we need that. And I think that if we can scuttle that in any way, I'm great. I'm great. <laughs> the coronavirus may be the best thing I get the, it's for the NSA that's ever been done after, after uh, Mr. Snowden. The uh, facial recognition stuff is really frightening. Very frightening. And in use all over the place. So, no, I think, uh, I, I do think that, you know, the, the masks, like, like, make a lot of sense in certain interactions. Um, we go walk some and we've gone to trails to hike. And I think there you can stay away enough from people that we wouldn't wear a mask. We've been playing tennis. I've seen nobody with a mask. You know, it just seems like it would impair your huffing and puffing. And, um, uh, but other stuff like gloves, we have, I have gloves in my car. I just have not had much reason to use them. There are times when I think they're helpful to use when you're going to touch something and you want to, you know, get rid of that quickly before you get back in your car and wipe down your hands or whatever. I'm uh, uh, so I, I've been using gloves much less, but but it is interesting. Anytime anyone I, I did a little joke on Facebook with gloves, saying that you know putting gloves on, I feel like I'm a surgeon. Is there anything else I would need to know before you know before I put out my uh, shingle as an MD? Uh, and uh, joking, and of course people were, are you wearing gloves? You know, gloves a lot of times won't work and. And uh, it does require some real thought behind all of these things that you don't, you know, like they putting gloves and wearing them for six weeks, you know, would not really solve the problem that you wear gloves to solve. But, but anyway, I do think people figure these things out and, um, and that allowing them to be free to do so makes a ton of sense. Well, like you say, the rest of the week was not about the coronavirus. No, fact, it's fact, Tuesday's like, piece was uh, was about something very very different. Um, well, and and some of the news was even good. Tuesday's piece was not good in my mind. You're you're maybe less <laughs> less uh, sanguine about the good or bad there, but um, 
Justin Amash uh, announced he was seeking the Libertarian presidential nomination. And of course, you know how the world works now. You have to explore the race and so on. So he says that it's like weeks before the, I think the, the balloting is today. It's obvious he's running. What a big name. You know, the, the Libertarians last time ran a governor. They ran a governor back in uh, uh, 2012. In 2008, they ran a former Republican congressman. So they've had some major elected officials who've said, hey, I want to run on that line. And I think it would have been very, very interesting uh, that Amash is a different sort of candidate for one. <clears throat> You've got Trump, uh, who's in his 70s. What is he, 73, I think? Uh, you've got Biden, who's 77. He'll be 78, I think, right, right around Election Day. Um, and then you've got this guy who's in his 40s. And, you know, much younger fellow and, and might reach a different audience. Uh, I think it's interesting politically, too, because, of course, he'd be coming more from a conservative Freedom Caucus founding member, uh, more, you know, libertarian aspect. And I think so many people would think, well, that's going to hurt Trump. But the initial polling had been, no, that it didn't hurt Trump. It actually helped Trump on the margin. And it, I, I just find it interesting because it's the same thing we saw in 2016, which is that people are so Trump-focused that it's Trump or not Trump. And there are people who can't stand Trump, but also can't stand Biden. But there are not a lot of people who can't stand Biden, but who don't like Trump, who are going to vote for the third party. So, in other words, people who would switch their vote if the, if the libertarian were in the race tend to be people who would vote against Trump and might switch from Biden to the libertarian, or maybe never were anywhere close to Biden, let's hope, for their sake. <laughs> but, but anyway, that's, uh, uh, I just think that's a, a very interesting dynamic. I suspect, and of course, one never knows. You have exit polls and different things, but all of this conjecture, it's a secret ballot. Uh, but in 2016, I suspect that uh, not only did Jill Stein the Green Party candidate take votes, more votes from Hillary Clinton than she took from uh, Trump, meaning they would have gone to Hillary Clinton. And of course, probably the majority of votes going to Stein or to Johnson, perhaps a majority, again, just speculating, uh, would not have voted at all. Would have said, I, I so despise the two major candidates. If there's not another candidate, I'm not even going to the polls. Or I'm going and I'm not voting for president. And so, uh, so it's, it's something on the margin. It's not, you know, it's not all their vote was going to go one way or the other. But I would su suspect that uh, the vast majority of Steins would have gone to Hillary Clinton and not to Trump, but that a slim majority of the remaining that would have gone somewhere of Gary Johnson's went, would have gone to Hillary Clinton. So that Hillary Clinton got hurt on both the Libertarian and the Green alternative. And, and that's not, you know, I mean, it's not so, some brilliant insight here, although, I mean, I have brilliant insights all the time. I can't think of any, but, but that's probably not one of them, because a lot of people have recognized the, the dominant way that 
Trump personality-wise and persona-wise, uh, the dominance that he has in the marketplace where, you know, 99.9% .9 name ID and people know how they, how they feel generally. Um, amazing that with 60% negatives, he still wins. And maybe they're down a little bit from that now. But, but the, the bigger issue about Amash, I almost, you know, got so into the horse race that I forgot too. Uh, but part of the whole point of this was that I was sad and still am sad that Amash won't be in the race because he would bring up things that the other candidates would not bring up. Uh, in addition to Biden being 77 years old, he's been in Washington for over 40 years. And so he's part of that system and Amash has fought against that system. And one of the things Amash pointed out is that in the House, the Speaker has near dictatorial power. That was true, he points out, when uh, Ryan was the Speaker. It is true with Pelosi as the Speaker. Nothing changed in terms of total top-down uh, way of, of running that House. And if you want anything, any benefits to get reelected and keep coming back, you better do what the speaker and the leadership tell you to do. And so we live in a country that is a representative democracy, representative republic, where we elect people to represent us in government. But our own representative in huge districts, but our own, at least one that supposedly works for us, has almost zero not a zilch power. All that power is in the party's leader, the speaker. And what that means is that we don't get any representation. And Amash was pointing that out. It's not pointed out enough. We, we live in a land where everything is Trump bad, Trump good, uh, we don't get much past there. Every idea is labeled. Trump's like it. He doesn't like it. I like it. I don't like it. But the reality is when we, we constantly are finding new powers that, oh, how did, how did Trump have this power? How did he have that power? And we find that our Congress gave away all their power. And that in terms of their power to represent us, that's what they gave away the most. It's just non-existent. So how does a great country with a system, and we, I can think of all kinds of fixes, but the core idea of electing someone to represent you is not a dead idea. And yet, and I'd like to get all kinds of direct democracy around it to make sure it doesn't die but it is on life support and Amash points it out. It's, it is party-based in, in, in 434 of the 435 districts in this country. They have no real power. It's all in the district of the speaker. And it's, you know, they buy off parts of the power because they're part of the leadership. They help raise the money, they help do this, but it's all top down. And we have to fundamentally shift that. And I didn't write the commentary this week, but maybe next week I will about greater representation. 
we are in districts of 700,000 people plus. They don't care what you think because you're one of 700,000 people plus. And when they need to communicate, they'll do TV ads, they'll do something else. They don't have to treat us as individual human beings because we really don't show up that way to them. We have to dramatically change that. I would boost the number of House members, U.S. representatives, more than tenfold. I think I would set a limit of either 50 or 70,000 constituents, and it would grow every year. If, it, if the number of reps had to grow to make it to where our districts weren't too big, and what would happen overnight is that a lot more people could run for office and win. They would be less beholden to moneyed interest on the left or the right because they can go communicate directly with people without having to have huge war chests. Next time you want to just submarine some guy with a lot of nasty ads, well, in a 50,000-person district, a lot of those people are going to know this guy or this woman. And I'd be careful what you say, because they may not like it if you say nasty stuff that's not true. And so it, it just it changes the whole dynamic of politics. It changes the whole way that money affects political races. Yes, you'd want enough to get your message out, but no more could you just blow people away with money. Um, and yet it doesn't change any of our First Amendment rights to speak and to spend money speaking. It doesn't limit us. It gives us new opportunities. And uh, I'll tell you, that's, that's something. And of course, you could imagine combining that with term limits, and you could have different things. You could have ranked choice voting. You could, But the basic fundamental part of American democracy is electing representatives who represent us. And that's the number one failure. Our representatives do not represent us. Well, some good things are happening. Trump uh, says he's going to chop a whole bunch of regulations away. Yes, and I have to say, what a, you know, what a, um, what an interesting guy. What an interesting fella. Uh, Trump is doubling down here on the best thing he's done. The best thing he did when he came in was to send a signal that there's a new sheriff in town that we're looking to get rid of regulations that stand in the way of America being profitable and making money. Um, that was all to the good, both the regulations that got, you know, nixed and the whole attitude of it. And now in this pandemic, looking for ways to let's get open and let's get moving economically, which is essential, which is life affirming. We're going to find out in in big, big ways. And he says to every cabinet official, look for regulations that you can nix. And of course, as, as we have said repeatedly throughout this whole thing, because we've seen so many regulations that people just immediately went, well, that's obviously stupid. Let's not do that. That's in the way. Um, any regulation that's set aside during this pandemic should not come back 
unless it is new, brand new, goes through the entire process, and the Congress is, again, stupid enough to enact it or allow some uh, bureaucratic agency to enact it. They should all be gone. They should stay gone. And certainly that should be the presumption. And, and so this is excellent, um, an excellent move on, on Trump's part. And it is something that, you know, there, there are other things that are little things. And I, I mentioned this both to compliment Trump on doing it, but also to point out that, you know, some people are actually paying attention to what happens and, and doing things that they like get, gets noticed. And I, I know most of the time, I guess it's, did you, did the check arrive in my bank account by magic? But, and we've talked about, we've never done a, a commentary on it, but we talked about the subsidy that China has had. We talked about it on this podcast. Uh, the subsidy that China has had that allows them to mail trinkets, little, all kinds of knockoff crap. That's what my wife would say. Oh, no, none of that crap can come in my house. And I love crap like that. That's my thing. Anyway, um, but China can send it to the U.S. from China cheaper than we can send it from, you know, Detroit to Ann Arbor. Um, from Chicago to Gary, Indiana. I mean, it's, it's like, how does that work? It's insane. And I remember reading an article about it where Trump had kind of taken it on and other presidents, presidents had done the same thing. They just didn't focus much on it. I believe now it has been ended. I don't think, I don't know if that ending has taken effect yet, but that subsidy has been ended. But this whole article, it was in Vox, um, and it was maybe six months, a year ago, uh, could have been more. The whole tone of it was what a crazy person Trump was to try to throw out a hundred year treaty, uh, about postal service stuff. And the whole tone of it was, he's a lunatic who just can't help but smash everything and destroy everything. And he's going after this treaty. And then you get four or five paragraphs in and they mentioned now, of course, the treaty doesn't make much sense. <laughs> and other presidents have also bitched and moaned and complained, but done nothing about it. And that's wonderful. There's now talk about for federal workers in their pension funds. They, there was a move to try to allow them to invest in Chinese companies. And one of the problems with Chinese companies is they're all basically owned by the government. So you can have a private Chinese company today, tomorrow it could be, the government could say, yes, that's ours 100%, and nobody would bat an eye. So the idea of private ownership in a totalitarian country just doesn't really work. So the Trump administration is coming in to push back and say, no, 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 we're not going to expand into that. And there should be a movement, I think, throughout the world to disinvest uh, from Chinese companies and Chinese products and, and with the hope that as soon as possible, not only will the CCP stop being a threat to people around them, but will cease to exist and being a threat to one point. 4 billion Chinese. So 
I, I applaud that sort of move that can be made by the government itself. And of course, they're going to get a lot of pushback there that, oh, we should do whatever's best for, um, for the pension people. Well, the truth is long term, what's best for everybody is not to invest in totalitarian regimes. And so anyway, you see thing like this after thing like this, it doesn't get talked about much in the, in the news media, but that's, that's in the end how I think most people are going to judge Mr. Biden, Mr. Trump, on what they know that they've done and, and that in many ways all the chattering about them is probably not going to, toward the end, move many people at all as much as seeing that, hey, they have accomplished something or, you know, in some cases, maybe not. Maybe they haven't accomplished anything except bad things. Well, China's been on your mind a lot in the last several months. And uh, your Thursday piece was also about China, in a sense, though it takes place in Australia. Yes. You know, I came to the conclusion last summer when we did a 30-year anniversary on Tiananmen Square, and I went through a lot of the videos and so on. We were going to do a video, you know, smorgasbord on, uh, on uh, Tiananmen Square anniversary. And I just, uh, that history at the time meant so much. Uh, I just thought it was so important and such an opportunity for the world. And then it was dashed. And I just felt like this last summer that, my goodness, look at where we are. China is in such a rising dominant position. It has become worse, not better in terms of its treatment of its own people, or any other people it can have anything to do with. And of course, last, uh, last year I went and visited Hong Kong where in walking in a demonstration that was not violent, all of a sudden we were being tear gassed. Um, I followed those very closely. I got to visit Taiwan uh, where they have moved from authoritarian martial law for 40 years after Chiang Kai-shek got there in 49 or 47, and uh, 49, I guess, and, um, and has turned into this free and democratic society that's, of course, growing economically, but the free and democratic is the part I like best. And, um, and I just look at that and I think, you know, the world is moving on and, there are two ways it can go. Increasingly, people want democracy and some power over their lives. And, and then there are totalitarian regimes like China, and it seems like they have been able to wield their state capitalism. And it, you, know, you could call it capitalism, it's certainly using the accumulation of capital in a, in, in a heck of a way, but it's totalitarian. And that, that future is a future in which our NBA all-stars better keep their mouth shut. And that's where, if you're a businessman and you thought that that protest somewhere else in the world was a good protest, you might be wrong about that. You might be fired. 
that's we're moving to a world in which not only are the poor people who are doing so much on the front lines in Hong Kong, the people who are risking their future to fight against this monster that's so big and so powerful, and yet they're fighting with almost nothing, and to see what other people have been doing, and then to think that in Australia, here is a, a student, Drew Pavlu, who spoke out, protested, has been physically attacked, has been threatened. The Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party has basically put out the word on Twitter and other, they don't even have Twitter in their country, but has, has sicked you know, their trolls and their bots on him. He may be expelled. And why? Because they want the money from China. And we're finding out now in the United States, we've had in the last couple of weeks, professors who were getting money from China, from the government of China. And yet, uh, wait a second, they're dealing with all kinds of uh, very classified, important stuff. And yet they're on the payroll with China and they didn't mention that. China is attempting to intimidate buy off, threaten the entire world. And it has come to the United States. It has come to Australia. This is not just something that, that uh, the poor people of Hong Kong have to worry about. We all have to worry about this. And I feel like I woke up about a year ago to the threat that's out there. And I'm, look, I live in the United States. My government is a, is a threat to me and a lot of other people. And I've always been focused on that. And I continue to focus on that and will continue to focus on it. Because if you live in, you know, the, the home of the brave, the land of the free, your number one job is to keep it that way. And I'm, I feel like some of us, we've, we've fallen down on the job because we, we have a lot to do to restore some semblance of citizen control and, and protection of individual rights and freedom. Because without America as a free country, the world's in deep trouble. But um, we, we also have to be aware of all over the world where things are happening. It's, we live in a very small planet now. And I, I look at what they're doing in Hong Kong and I say, those, those protesters are, I mean, they're doing it for them, but they're doing it for me because freedom needs protection everywhere. And I'm part of any freedom movement. Uh, I like you if you're an American. You know what? I like you if you're a Hong Konger too. And I want you to be free every bit as much. And obviously there's some limits to, what we can do from one nation to another. But this has been a recurring theme over the last year, as you know, Tim, that uh, we as individuals have to find ways to get more engaged in each other's freedom around the globe and not get separated by nation states and leaders who are more interested in their own benefit than in the basic freedom that we're all very, very interested in. That was This Week in Common Sense. That was Paul Jacob talking about his work on thisiscommonsense.org. 
which you can read five days a week. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, and probably elsewhere too. I think I use uh, Overcast. My name is Timothy Vercola. You can find me at workman.com and on social media at, at Workman. That's Workman with an I, not an O. And I thank you for stopping by this week, and we'll be back next week for This Week in Common Sense. Thanks. Money can't buy happiness, but it sure does help.